Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Chapter 8, The Mermaid's Lagoon, and Chapter 9, The Neverbird, from Peter Pan, by James Matthew Barry. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 8 The Mermaid's Lagoon If you shut your eyes and are a lucky one, you may see at times a shapeless pool of lovely pale colours suspended in the darkness. Then, if you squeeze your eyes tighter, the pool begins to take shape and the colours become so vivid that with another squeeze they must go on fire. But just before they go on fire, you see the lagoon. This is the nearest you ever get to it on the mainland. Just one heavenly moment. If there could be two moments, you might see the surf and hear the mermaid singing. The children often spent long summer days on this lagoon, swimming or floating most of the time, playing the mermaid games in the water and so forth. You must not think from this the mermaids were on friendly terms with them. On the contrary, it was among Wendy's lasting regrets that all the time she was on the island she never had a civil word from them. When she stole softly to the edge of the lagoon, she might see them by the score especially on Maroona's Rock, where they loved to bask, combing out their hair in a lazy way that quite irritated her. Or she might even swim, on tiptoe as it were, to within a yard of them. But they saw her and divided 
probably splashing her with their tails. Not by accident, but intentionally. They treated all the boys in the same way, except, of course, Peter, who chatted with them on Maroona's rock by the hour and sat on their tails when they got cheeky. He gave Wendy one of their combs. The most haunting time at which to see them is at the turn of the moon, when they utter strange wailing cries. But the lagoon is dangerous for mortals then, and until the evening of which they have now to tell. Wendy had never seen the lagoon by moonlight, less from fear, for of course Peter would have accompanied her, than because she had strict rules about everyone being in bed by seven. She was often at the lagoon, however, on sunny days after rain when the mermaids come up in extraordinary numbers to play with their bubbles. The bubbles of many colours made in rainbow water they treat as balls, hitting them gaily from one to another with their tails, and trying to keep them in the rainbow till they burst. The goals are at each end of the rainbow, and the keepers only are allowed to use their hands. Sometimes a dozen of these games will be going on in the lagoon at a time, and it's quite a pretty sight. But the moment the children tried to join in, they had to play by themselves for the mermaids immediately disappeared. Nevertheless, we have proof that they secretly watched the interlopers, and we're not above taking an idea from them, for John introduced a new way of hitting the bubbles, with the head instead of the hand, and the mermaids adopted it. This is the one mark that John has left on the Neverland. It must also have been rather pretty to see the children resting on the rock for half an hour after their midday meal. Wendy insisted on their doing this, and it had to be a real rest even though the meal was make-believe. So they lay there in the sun, and their bodies glistened in it, while she sat beside them and looked important. It was one such day, and they were all on Maruna's rock. The rock was not much larger than their great bed, but of course they all knew how not to take up much room and they were dozing, 
or at least lying with their eyes shut, and pinching occasionally when they thought Wendy was not looking. She was very busy stitching. While she stitched, a change came to the lagoon. Little shivers ran over it, and the sun went away, and shadows stole across the water, turning it cold. Wendy could no longer see to thread her needle, and when she looked up, the lagoon that had always hitherto been such a laughing place seemed formidable and unfriendly. It was not, she knew, that night had come, but something as dark as night had come. No, worse than that, it had not come, but it had sent that shiver through the sea to say that it was coming. What was it? There crowded upon her all the stories she had been told of Maruna's rock, so called because evil captains put sailors on it and leave them there to drown. They drown when the tides rise, for then it is submerged. Of course, she should have roused the children at once, not merely because of the unknown that was stalking towards them, but because it was no longer good for them to sleep on a rock grown chilly. But she was a young mother, and she did not know this. She thought you simply must stick to your rule about half an hour after the midday meal. So, though fear was upon her, and she longed to hear male voices, she would not waken them. Even when she heard the sound of muffled oars, though her heart was in her mouth, she did not waken them. She stood over them to let them have their sleep out. Was it not brave of Wendy? It was well for those boys that they were once among them who could sniff danger, even in his sleep. Peter sprang erect, as wide awake at once as a dog, and with one warning cry he roused the others. He stood motionless, one hand to his ear. Pirates, he cried. The others came close to him. A strange smile was playing about his face, and Wendy saw it and shuddered. While that smile was on his face, no one dared address him. All they could do was stand ready to obey. The order came sharp and incisive. Dive! There was a gleam of legs 
and instantly the lagoon seemed deserted. Maruna's rock stood alone in the forbidding waters, as if it were marooned itself. The boat drew nearer. It was the pirate dinghy, with three figures in her, Smee and Starkey, and the third a captive, no other than Tiger Lily. Her hands and ankles were tied. She knew what was to be her fate. She was to be left on the rock to perish, and end to one of her races more terrible than death by fire or torture. For is it not written in the book of the tribe that there is no path through water? To the happy hunting ground. Yet her face was impassive. She was the daughter of a chief. She must die as a chief's daughter. It is enough. They had caught her boarding the pirate ship with a knife in her mouth. No watch was kept on the ship, it being Hook's boast the wind of his name, guarded the ship for a mile around. Now her fate would help to guard it also. One more whale could go round in that wind by night. In the gloom that they brought with them, the two pirates did not see the rock till they crashed into it. Luff, you lubber, cried an Irish voice that was Smee's. Here's the rock. Now then, what we have to do is to hoist the red skin onto it and leave her to drown. It was the work of one brutal moment to land the beautiful girl on the rock. She was too proud to offer a vain resistance. Quite near the rock, but out of sight, two heads were bobbing up and down, Peter's and Wendy's. Wendy was crying, for it was the first tragedy she had seen. Peter had seen many tragedies but he had forgotten them all. He was less sorry than Wendy for Tiger Lily. It was two against one that angered him, and he meant to save her. An easy way would have been to wait until the pirates had gone, but he was never one to choose the easy way. There was almost nothing he could not do, and he now imitated the voice of Hook. Ahoy there, you lubbers, he called. It was a marvellous imitation. The captain, said the pirates, staring at each other in surprise. He must be swimming out to us, Starkey said when they had looked for him in vain. 
We are putting the red skin on the rock, Smee called out. Set her free, came the astonishing answer. Free? Yes, cut her bonds and let her go. But Captain, at once, d'ye hear? cried Peter, or I'll plunge my hook into you. This is queer, Smee gasped. Better do what the captain orders, said Starkey nervously. Aye, aye, Smee said, and he cut Tiger Lily's cords. At once, like an eel, she slid between Starkey's legs into the water. Of course, Wendy was very elated over Peter's cleverness, but she knew he would be elated also, and very likely crow, and thus betray himself. So at once, her hand went out to cover his mouth. But it was stayed even in the act, for Boat Ahoy ran over the lagoon in Hook's voice, and this time it was not Peter who had spoken. Peter may have been about to crow, but his face puckered in a whistle of surprise instead. Boat Ahoy! Again came the voice. Now Wendy understood. The real hook was also in the water. He was swimming to the boat, and as his men showed a light to guide him, he had soon reached them. In the light of the lantern, Wendy saw his hook grip the boat's side. She saw his evil, swarthy face as he rose dripping from the water, and, quaking, she would have liked to swim away. But Peter would not budge. He was tingling with life, and also top-heavy with conceit. Am I not a wonder? Oh, I am a wonder he whispered to her, and though she thought so also, she was really glad for the sake of his reputation that no one heard him except herself. He signed to her to listen. The two pirates were very curious to know what had brought their captain to them, but he sat with his head on his hook, in a position of profound melancholy. Captain, is all well? they asked timidly, but he answered with a hollow moan. He sighs, said Smee. He sighs again, said Starkey. And yet a third time he sighs, said Smee. Then at last he spoke passionately. The game's up, he cried. Those boys have found a mother. 
affrighted though she was, Wendy swelled with pride. Oh, evil day, cried Starkey. What's a mother? asked the ignorant Smee. Wendy was so shocked that she exclaimed, He doesn't know. And always after this she felt that if you could have a pet pirate, Smee would be her one. Peter pulled her beneath the water, for Hook had started up, crying, What was that? I heard nothing, said Starkey, raising the lantern over the water, and as the pirates looked, they saw a strange sight. It was the nest I have told you of, floating on the lagoon and the never-bird was sitting on it. See, said Hook in answer to Smee's question, that is a mother. What a lesson. The nest must have fallen into the water, but would the mother desert her eggs? No. There was a break in his voice as if for a moment he recalled innocent days when. But he brushed away this weakness with his hook. Smee, much impressed, gazed at the bird as the nest was borne past, but the more suspicious Starkey said, If she is a mother, Perhaps she is hanging about here to help Peter. Hook winced. Aye, he said, that is the fear that haunts me. He was roused from this dejection by Smee's eager voice. Captain, said Smee, could we not kidnap these boys, mother? and make her our mother. It is a princely scheme, cried Hook, and at once it took practical shape in his great brain. We will seize the children and carry them to the boat. The boys we will make walk the plank, and Wendy shall be our mother. Again, Wendy forgot herself. Never, she cried and bobbed. What was that? But they could see nothing. They thought it must have been a leaf in the wind. Do you agree, my bullies? asked Hook. There is my hand on it, they both said. And there is my hook. Swear. They all swore, but this time they were on the rock, and suddenly Hook remembered Tiger Lily. Where is the redskin? he demanded abruptly. He had a playful humour at moments, and they thought this was one of those moments. 
That is all right, Captain, Smee answered complacently. We let her go. Let her go, cried Hook. Twas your own orders, the bosun faltered. You called over the water to us to let her go, said Starkey. Brimstone and gall, thundered Hook. What cozening is going on here? His face had gone black with rage, but he saw that they believed their words, and he was startled. Lads, he said, shaking a little, I gave no such order. It is passing queer, Smee said, and they all fidgeted uncomfortably. Hook raised his voice, but there was a quiver in it. Spirit that haunts this dark lagoon tonight, he cried. Dost hear me? Of course, Peter should have kept quiet, but of course he did not. He immediately answered in Hook's voice. Odds, bobs, hammers and tongs, I hear you. In that supreme moment, Hook did not blanch, even at the gills, but Smee and Starkey clung to each other in terror. Who are you, stranger? Speak, Hook demanded. I am James Hook, replied the voice, captain of the Jolly Roger. You are not, you are not, Hook cried hoarsely. Brimstone and gall, the voice retorted. Say that again, and I'll cast anchor in you. Hook tried a more interrogating manner. If you are Hook, he said almost humbly, come tell me, who am I? A codfish, replied the voice. Only a codfish. A codfish? Hook echoed blankly, and it was then but not till then, that his proud spirit broke, he saw his men draw back from him. Have we been captained all this time by a codfish, they muttered. It is lowering to our pride. They were his dogs snapping at him, but... Tragic figure though he had become, he scarcely heeded them. Against such fearful evidence, it was not their disbelief in him that he needed, it was his own. He felt his ego slipping from him. Don't desert me, bully, he whispered hoarsely to it. 
In his dark nature there was a touch of the feminine, as in all the great pirates, and it sometimes gave him intuitions. Suddenly he tried the guessing game. Hook, he called, have you another voice? Now Peter could never resist a game, and he answered blithely in his own voice, I have, and another name, I, I. Vegetable, asked Hook, no. Mineral, no. Animal, yes. Man? No. This answer rang out scornfully. Boy? Yes. Ordinary boy? No. Wonderful boy? To Wendy's pain, the answer that rang out this time was yes. Are you in England? No. Are you here? Yes. Hook was completely puzzled. You ask him some questions, he said to the others, wiping his damp brow. Smee reflected. I can't think of a thing, he said regretfully. Can't guess, can't guess, crowed Peter. Do you give it up? Of course, in his pride, he was carrying the game too far, and the miscreants saw their chance. Yes, yes, they answered eagerly. Well then, he cried, I am Peter Pan. Pan. In a moment, Hook was himself again and Smee and Starkey were his faithful henchmen. Now we have him, Hook shouted. Into the water, Smee. Starkey, mind the boat. Take him dead or alive. He leaped as he spoke, and simultaneously came the gay voice of Peter. Are you ready, boys? I, I, from various parts of the lagoon. Then lamb into the pirates. The fight was short and sharp. The first to draw blood was John, who gallantly climbed into the boat and held Starkey. There was a fierce struggle in which the cutlass was torn from the pirate's grasp. He wriggled overboard and John leapt after him. The dinghy drifted away. Here and there a head bobbed up in the water and there was a flash of steel followed by a cry or a whoop. In the confusion some struck at their own side. The corkscrew of Smee got Tootles in the fourth rib, but he was himself pinked 
in turn by Curly. Further from the rock, Starkey was pressing slightly and the twins hard. Where all this time was Peter? He was seeking bigger game. The others were all brave boys, and they must not be blamed for backing from the pirate captain. His iron claw made a circle of death water around him, from which they fled like affrighted fishes. But there was one who did not fear him. There was one prepared to enter that circle. Strangely, it was not in the water that they met. Hook rose to the rock to breathe, and at the same moment Peter scaled it on the opposite side. The rock was slippery as a ball, and they had to crawl rather than climb. Neither knew that the other was coming. Each feeling for a grip met the other's arm. In surprise they raised their heads. Their faces were almost touching, so they met. Some of the greatest heroes have confessed that just before they fell, too they had a sinking. Had it been so with Peter at that moment, I would admit it. After all, he was the only man that the sea cook had feared. But Peter had no sinking. He had one feeling only, gladness, and he gnashed his pretty teeth with joy. Quick as thought, he snatched a knife from Hook's belt and was about to drive it home when he saw that he was higher up the rock than his foe. It would not have been fighting fair. He gave the pirate a hand to help him up. It was then that Hook bit him. Not the pain of this, but its unfairness was what dazed Peter. It made him quite helpless. He could only stare, horrified. Every child is affected thus the first time he is treated unfairly. All he thinks he has a right to when he comes to you to be yours is fairness. After you have been unfair to him, he will love you again, but will never afterwards be quite the same boy. No one ever gets over the first unfairness, no one except Peter. He often met it, but he always forgot it. I suppose that was the real difference between him and all the rest. So when he met it now it was like the first time, and he could just stare, helpless. Twice the iron hand clawed him. A few moments afterwards the boys saw Hook 
in the water, striking wildly for the ship. No elation on the pestilent face now, only white fear, for the crocodile was in dodged pursuit of him. On ordinary occasions the boys would have swum alongside, cheering, but now they were uneasy, for they had lost both Peter and Wendy, and were scouring the lagoon for them, calling them by name. They found the dinghy and went home in it, shouting, Peter, Wendy, as they went. But no answer came, save mocking laughter from the mermaids. They must be swimming back or flying, the boys concluded. They were not very anxious, because they had such faith in Peter. They chuckled, boy-like, because they would be late for bed, and it was all Mother Wendy's fault. When their voice died away, there came cold silence over the lagoon, and then a feeble cry. Help! Help! Two small figures were being beaten against the rock. The girl had fainted and lay on the boy's arm. With a last effort, Peter pulled her up the rock and then lay down beside her. Even as he also fainted, he saw that the water was rising. He knew that they would soon be drowned, but he could do no more. As they lay side by side, a mermaid caught Wendy by the feet and began pulling her softly into the water. Peter, feeling her slip from him, woke with a start, and was just in time to draw her back, but he had to tell her the truth. We are on the rock, Wendy, he said, but it is growing smaller. Soon the water will be over it. She did not understand, even now. We must go, she said almost brightly. Yes, he answered faintly. Shall we swim or fly, Peter? He had to tell her. Do you think you could swim or fly as far as the island, Wendy, without my help? She had to admit that she was too tired. He moaned. What is it? she asked, anxious about him at once. I can't help you, Wendy. Hook wounded me. I can neither fly nor swim. Do you mean we shall both be drowned? Look how the water is rising. They put their hands over their eyes to shut out the sight. They thought they would soon be no more as they sat thus 
something brushed against Peter as light as a kiss, and stayed there as if saying timidly, Can I be of any use? It was the tail of a kite, which Michael had made some days before. It had torn itself out of his hand and floated away. Michael's kite, Peter said without interest, but next moment he seized the tail and was pulling the kite towards him. It lifted Michael off the ground. He cried, Why should it not carry you? Both of us. It can't lift too. Michael and Curly tried. Let us draw lots, Wendy said bravely. And you, a lady, never. Already he had tied the tail around her. She clung to him. She refused to go without him. But with a goodbye, Wendy, he pushed her from the rock. And in a few minutes she was born out of his sight. Peter was alone on the lagoon. The rock was very small now. Soon it would be submerged. Pale rays of light tiptoed across the waters, and by and by there was to be heard a sound at once the most musical and the most melancholy in the world. The mermaids calling to the moon. Peter was not quite like other boys, but he was afraid at last. A tremor ran through him, like a shudder passing over the sea, but on the sea one shudder follows another till there are hundreds of them, and Peter felt just the one. Next moment he was standing erect on the rock again, with that smile on his face and a drum beating within him. It was saying, To die would be an awfully big adventure. Chapter 9 The Neverbird The last sound Peter heard before he was quite alone were the mermaid retiring one by one to their bedchambers under the sea. He was too far away to hear their doors shut, but every door in the coral caves where they live rings a tiny bell when it opens or closes, as in all the nicest houses on the mainland, and he heard the bells. Steadily the waters rose till they were nibbling at his feet, and to pass the time until they made their final gulp, he watched the only thing on the lagoon. He thought it was a piece of floating paper, perhaps part of the kite, 
and wondered idly how long it would take to drift ashore. Presently, he noticed as an odd thing that it was undoubtedly out upon the lagoon with some definite purpose, for it was fighting the tide, and sometimes winning, and when it won, Peter always sympathetic to the weaker side, could not help clapping. It was such a gallant piece of paper. It was not really a piece of paper, it was the Neverbird, making desperate efforts to reach Peter on the nest. By working her wings, in a way she had learnt since the nest fell into the water, she was able to extend to guide her strange craft. But by the time Peter recognised her, she was very exhausted. She had come to save him, to give him her nest, though there were eggs in it. I rather wonder at the bird, for though he had been nice to her, he had also sometimes tormented her. I can suppose only that, like Mrs. Darling and the rest of them, she was melted because he had all his first teeth. She called out to him what she had come for, and he called out to her what she was doing there, but of course neither of them understood the other's language. In fanciful stories people can talk to the birds freely, and I wish for the moment I could pretend that this was such a story, and say that Peter replied intelligently to the Neverbird. But truth is best, and I want to tell you only what really happened. Well, not only could they not understand each other, but they forgot their manners. I want you to get into the nest, the bird called, speaking as slowly and distinctly as possible, and then you can drift ashore. But I am too tired to bring it any nearer, so you must try to swim to it. What are you quacking about? Peter answered. Why don't you let the nest drift as usual? I want you, the bird said, and repeated it all over. Then Peter tried slow and distinct. What are you quacking about? And so on. The Neverbird became irritated. They have very short tempers. You dunderheaded little jay, she screamed. Why don't you do as I tell you? Peter felt that she was calling his name, and at a venture he retorted hotly. So are you. Then rather curiously, they both snapped out the same remark. Shut up, 
shut up. Nevertheless, the bird was determined to save him if she could, and by one last mighty effort she propelled the nest against the rock. Then up she flew, deserting her eggs, so as to make her meaning clear. Then at last he understood, and clutched the nest, and waved his thanks to the bird as she fluttered overhead. It was not to receive his thanks, however, that she hung there in the sky. It was not even to watch him get into the nest. It was to see what he did with her eggs. There were two large white eggs, and Peter lifted them up and reflected. The bird covered her face with her wings, so as not to see the last of them, but she could not help peeping between the feathers. I forgot whether I have told you that there was a stave on the rock, driven into it by some buccaneers of long ago to mark the site of buried treasure. The children had discovered the glittering hoard, and when in a mischievous mood used to fling showers of meorders, diamonds, pearls, and pieces of eight to the gulls, who pounced upon them for food, and then flew away, raging at the scurvy trick that had been played upon them. The stave was still there, and on it Starkey had hung his hat, a deep tarpaulin, water-tight, with a broad brim. Peter put the eggs into this hat and set it on the lagoon. It floated beautifully. The never-bird saw at once what he was up to and screamed her admiration of him, and, alas, Peter crowed his agreement with her. Then he got into the nest, reared the stave in it as a mast, and hung up his shirt for a sail. At the same moment the bird fluttered down upon the hat, and once more sat snugly on her eggs. He drifted in one direction, and he was borne off in another, both cheering. Of course, when Peter landed, he beached his bark in a place where the bird would easily find it. But the hat was such a great success that she abandoned the nest. It drifted about till it went to pieces, and often Starkey came to the shore of the lagoon with many bitter feelings watched the bird sit on his hat. As we shall not see her again, it may be worth mentioning here that all never birds now build in that shape of nest, with a broad brim on which the youngsters take an airing, 
Great were the rejoicings when Peter reached the home under the ground, almost as soon as Wendy, who had been carried hither and thither by the kite. Every boy had adventures to tell, but perhaps the biggest adventure of all was that they were several hours late for bed. This so inflated them that they did various dodgy things to get staying up till longer, such as demanding bandages. But Wendy, though glorying in having them all home again, safe and sound, was scandalized by the lateness of the hour, and cried, To bed, to bed in a voice that had to be obeyed. Next day, however, she was awfully tender, and gave out bandages to everyone, and they played till bedtime at limping about and carrying their arms in slings. <laughs>